0: So here we are, the last lesson in the study of Galatians. And in chapter 6, we ought to be happy. I'm happy. (laughs) I'll applaud for that myself. (laughs) But Paul is giving his concluding remarks, almost like a postscript to his letter, if you will. And we found so far that in the book of Galatians that the real problem here is not Judaizers or what we've labeled influencers, trying to put Gentiles under God's law, as it has been interpreted through the centuries, that's not at all the problem. The influencers, who are either Jewish believers or proselytes to Judaism, probably both, are trying to get non-Jewish God-fearers and followers of the Messiah to fully convert to Judaism, to Jewish law. Not God's law, mind you, but Jewish law. They're trying to persuade them to be circumcised, which is really shorthand for saying, becoming a proselyte, in the manner prescribed by the additional Jewish laws formulated by the rabbis and sages. And this would entail that a Gentile, first learning the laws of God, and then all of the subsequent rulings of the rabbis and sages regarding keeping the law, in effect would vow to live as a Jew. Then be circumcised and immersed, Go to the temple and offer a burnt offering. And this process, according to the rabbis, would make them part of the nation of Israel under Jewish law. And I emphasize again under Jewish law because it's not God's law. God does not require this in his Torah. God does not require non-Jews to convert in this fashion in the Torah. In fact, it is his plan that all nations be blessed through Messiah Yeshua and these gentiles coming to faith in the Messiah Yeshua are proof that God is keeping his promise to Abraham but the influencers see becoming part of Israel in the traditional process as an essential part of salvation and securing a place in the world to come Paul of course disagrees because he knows that it is through faith in the risen Messiah Yeshua that we secure salvation and a place in the world to come. Now, he begins this postscript with kind of an odd remark. It would appear if we had the original document that it would be a change in font or something, much the same way emails uh, do, which I find rather annoying. You'll have an email where someone will change the font from a regular font to caps. Is this if he's shouting at you or something? And when they do this, they're trying to make a special emphasis or a particular point or show that they're upset or something, I don't know. But he kind of does the same thing here, it seems. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. He more than likely writes here with larger letters, as I said, to draw particular attention to his concluding remarks. Maybe like we would if we were writing a PS to a letter. Or something like that. And I think because he's already made his scriptural arguments, his points in the letter, he cuts through the scriptural arguments to some personal comments and conclusions for the reason these influencers are pushing to have these non-Jews convert. And in verse 12, he says... Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Messiah. So. If they were trying to make a good impression by compelling non-Jews to take on the Mosaic covenant, just as a Jewish person with all of its subsequent rabbinic rulings and so forth, they would imply that they thought of themselves above these Gentile believers, or better, or better because um, of their adherence to Jewish law. And I think the text has shown that, and will continue to do that. Well, first we need to answer: Who are they trying to impress? Well, we know that it isn't the Romans that they're trying to make a good impression upon because circumcision was considered mutilation of the flesh and unlawful by the Romans. So it must be the others in the synagogue. And when, they, when we couple it with they wish to avoid being persecuted for the sake of the cross, a Messiah, we can reasonably assume that they are more than likely Jewish believers or proselytes attempting to appease those in the community who were not believers. And we're uncomfortable with all of these uncircumcised Gentiles coming into their midst. And when he says avoid persecution of the cross, we know that Paul suffered for the sake of the cross at the hands of the Jewish people many times for the Gospels that he preached. And the Gospel that he preached was that non-Jews need not convert. But he tells us of this persecution in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jews... 40 lattices minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. And so I would assume that Paul, in putting a motive behind these influencers' push for circumcision, is saying it is to avoid this type of persecution, some of which he's probably already suffered here in Galatia, as we'll see later. And then he says in verse 13, Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. This is kind of troubling because what could he mean by even those who are circumcised don't obey the law? Because we can reasonably be sure that the Jewish people and the proselytes obeyed the law. So what can he mean here? Well, considering the entire letter, I think the only conclusion... We can come to is that he means they don't walk out the Torah in its true essence by the spirit of God, because he's made it clear that the only way to truly walk out the law is by the spirit of God. Remember what Paul said about the Romans uh, about the law in Romans chapter eight? He said, for the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. In Romans chapter 7, he tells us that the law is holy, righteous, and good. But here he says, despite that it's holy, righteous, and good, it was not able to keep people's feet on the path of God because it was weakened by the flesh of those people. And if we combine that with what we covered last week in chapter 5, verse 16 and 18, we covered this last week a little bit. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so we can reasonably assume that Paul is saying that they don't obey the law because they're not walking, because they're walking out the law according to the flesh and not by the Spirit, and therefore they're not truly obeying the true essence of the law. And as we pointed out in previous lessons, the only Torah observance that is a a true Torah observance is that which is obedience to the Spirit of God, or what we could say Yeshua's halakha. Because he walked out the Torah by the Spirit of God, so I'm sure that these influences are obedient to the Torah by community standards. But Paul must be referring to the truths of the law by the leading of the Spirit and by Kingdom of God standards. The very fact that they are, uh, because of, or that they are because of ethnic status boasting and feeling a sense of superiority over these non-Jews who are turning to God, shows that they're not walking in the humility, the servanthood, and the love that the Torah teaches. Nor are they walking in the humility, the servanthood, and the love that the word of God made flesh, lived out in his life. If they were walking by the Spirit, then love of their fellow man would be the driving force in their life. And as I said in earlier lessons, they would not be asking these non-Jews to do what they're asking them to do because they would know the grief that it was going to bring into their lives. The humility that Torah teaches was displayed in the life of the living word made flesh when he dwelled among us. And so his followers should display that in their lives as well. Amen. I mean, if we're true disciples, we should. But instead, the influencers boast is in what is in who they are and what they are in the flesh. And I can tell you now that who they are and what they are in the flesh and who we are and what we are in the flesh means nothing to God. And so he says in the next verse, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, through which the whole world has been crucified to me. An eye to the world. Paul says that the world with all of its pride, with all of its strife, with all of its striving, with all its disobedience has been crucified to him and he has been raised anew. And so he says in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. And this is where I really wanted to get for the day because this is what I wanted to focus on today. Paul repeats this refrain. We've heard this before. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. We've heard that phrase used before. But everywhere else it's used, he uses something different with it. A different conclusion, we might say. So let's look at the first, uh, back to chapter 5 where he used this. He says, For in Messiah Yeshua... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Same phrase, different conclusion. Paul tells the Galatians and us that the only thing that counts is faith. And that faith expressing itself through love. And he's saying what counts is faith in Messiah and the redemption he's secured. He's pointed out over and over in his book and in other letters as well, that being in Messiah is everything to Paul. Romans chapter 6 tells us the gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Romans chapter 12 tells us that in Messiah Yeshua, we who are one body, we belong to all the others. In Romans chapter eight, he tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. In first Corinthians chapter one, he tells us those in Messiah in it, that in Messiah we find the wisdom of God, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And he says, therefore, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. In second Corinthians chapter one, he tells us the promises of God are yes in Messiah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us anyone who is in Messiah is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And now he tells us that in Messiah, we will manifest, will manifest itself in our lives as love for those who are in Messiah. It would be valuable, I think, at this point in the letter to just review what faith means to Paul. If we look at what he has said in this letter and also in the book of Romans, we'll find that when he says faith, he expects expects us to understand faith through the lens of Abraham's life. Because he's the father of those who are of faith. The faith that Abraham displayed was in the promise of God. And Abraham's faith specifically was in the promise of God that he would have an heir. Recorded in Genesis chapter 15. And then Abraham's faith in that promise is shown over and over. And then it's revealed in its fullness in the offering of Isaac. It's first displayed as they go up the mountain. And Isaac asks, Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the offering? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, through faith in the promise of God, he says, God, my son, God himself will provide the lamb. Then really the depth of his faith in the promise of God is displayed in the actual offering of Isaac as he offers his one and only son, the heir that God has promised him. Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have not done because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the she- seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Because he would have offered his son had not God not intervened, God adds clarity to this promise that he's made to him of an heir. He says, your seed singular, who Paul makes a point of telling us is Messiah Yeshua, it is through him that all nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, that's why he's the father of those in faith because our faith must be in that same seed that he just spoke of. And we covered it in previous lessons. Paul viewed this flood of non-Jews coming to faith in Messiah Yeshua and the God of Israel as visible proof of God's promise to Abraham being yes and amen. That all the nations now are being blessed with life through Messiah Yeshua, the seed of Abraham. The other part of that promise, and really shows the depth of Abraham's faith, is it's again shown, is that it didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime. And so we learn this about true faith. It must remain steadfast through all adversity, through all trials and testing, and not just for today, but steadfast throughout your life, even when its completion may not happen in your lifetime. Faith in God naturally expresses itself in love for God And the saving grace that he brings into your life, but it also because you realize, as Paul did, that God's promise and his love extends not just to you and not just to the Jewish people or not, but to all those from the nations. And not just for you, but for your fellow man. And so it causes you to love others because God loves others. Seeing those promises of God fulfilled in some measure as Paul is seeing in his life would bring you to the realization that God, that the God that you love and it puts your faith and confidence in loves and has a plan for all the nations of the earth will turn to him. And Paul says this of circumcision and uncircumcision in first Corinthians, another occurrence of this phrase, he says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping God's commands is what counts. You see, here Paul further defines what faith expressing itself in love means in our lives. The negative commands of God give us an outline of what it means to love God and our fellow man. It tells us what is offensive to God. And so that in our life, we can avoid those things. It tells us what is offensive to our neighbor, so that in our treatment of him, we can avoid those things. Then in its positive command, the Torah reminds us what is pleasing to God so that we can do those things. And what is good for us is also good for our neighbor, so that we can treat him in that way. Obeying the commands of God shows your love for God, your king, your master in that. His wishes are first and foremost in your life, even above your own. Keeping the commands of God also shows the world around us that the God of Israel is. Well, let's hear what he says he is what, is, what he says it shows the world. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse five says, see, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of them. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord your God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? You see, in Messiah Yeshua, we find wisdom. That is our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption. And in keeping the commands of God, we show the world that all of these things are good and possible through faith in the seed of Abraham, Messiah Yeshua. And then in verse 15, Paul gives us the result of expressing itself in love and keeping the commands of God. And that's where he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. He tells us what counts is a new creation. What is born out of faith in God and Messiah, out of love and obedience to his commands, is a new creation. A new creation that's demonstrated in part in the life of Abraham, but in its fullness in the life of Messiah Yeshua. And so it stands if we have the faith of Abraham and we walk as Messiah Yeshua, then we will display those things to the world as well. It's Messiah Yeshua that we are a new creation. It's in him that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The new is a righteousness that was lost to the world on the day Adam obeyed God. A new creation who just as Eve was taken from the rib of a living Adam, is born out of the life of a living Messiah and his being pierced in the side for us. In the midst of all this wonderful good news, we get this next. He says, mercy, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. He says, peace and blessing and mercy to all who walk as new creations. And then he adds, even to the Israel of God. Young's literal puts it this way. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as many who walk by this this rule do walk, peace upon them and kindness and on the Israel of God. Why would Paul add, and to the Israel of God here? We know by now that Paul views non-Jews being grafted in, they're grafted into the people of God through Messiah Yeshua or made part of the olive tree, which is Israel. I think that we've all come to that realization that the Israel is actually made up of Jew and non-Jew. It always has been. So why would he put this additional and to the Israel of God in the letter? Because I can tell you that this addition has caused much error within the church. Justin Martyr, considered a saint, and one of the church fathers took this phrase and added a dash of anti-Semitism to it and led people astray. Justin Martyr, in his letter to Trifo, the Jew, early in the second century, gives us the church attitude toward this verse through the centuries. He says... For the, true, for the true spiritual Israel and descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, who in uncircumcision was approved of and blessed by God on account of his faith and called the father of many nations, are we who have been led to God through this crucified Messiah shall be demonstrated as we proceed. You know, when we studied the book of Romans, what we found was there was a wave of anti-Semitism that swept through Rome in about 54 common era. And that's what Paul's responding to in the letter. The church of Rome in the middle of the first century was, had a an anti-Sem, spirit of anti-Semitism sweep through it. And it would seem that it's continued or at least was rekindled early in the second century as we just read. The only explanation for someone reading through the writings of the apostles and coming up with the church being the true spiritual Israel would be that they began reading those writings with a prejudice. However, that's exactly what the church father and the saint, according to the Catholic Church here, did. So what does it really mean? You see, for Paul, the Israel of God had its meaning tied up in the end of days. He saw the Israel of God as the final ingathering of all of God's people, the finalization of the promise of God to Abraham. That the natural heirs of Abraham would come to Messiah in a national salvation. And we see that prophesied for us again in the book of Revelation. Particularly chapter 12. It's what Paul envisioned when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 11. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved. You see, Paul envisions the Israel of God as those who are in Messiah, both Jew and non-Jew, have put their confidence in the Messiah, Yeshua. And when this final hardening of the heart is taken from Israel and the full number of the non-Jews has been reached, then all Israel will be saved. Jew and non-Jew. All will be saved. You see, the Israel of God is the new creation. Those who keep the commands of God, those who have the faith of Abraham and those who have the manifestation of that faith, faith, which is love of God and love of their neighbor. This fulfilling the promise to Abraham that through Abraham seed all nations, all nations, Israel, France, Germany, England, and let's not forget Ireland and all the rest. will be blessed not because they join Israel but because they have faith in Messiah Yeshua and that's how they join Israel so in some respects the phrase but a new creation as many as by this rule do walk peace upon them and kindness and on all of on the Israel of God would seem to be a bit redundant wouldn't it He says, peace beyond this new creation and those who walk in that way and on the Israel of God. That sounds a bit redundant, doesn't it? Because the Israel of God is the new creation. But we see this in Jewish writings. One of our blessings of the Amidah is is redundant in the same way. We pray it every Sabbath. Some of us pray it every day. It says, may Israel who made peace in the high places make peace upon us and all Israel. Same redundancy. The point being, the Israel of God is Jew and non-Jew, those who are in Messiah Yeshua, because that's everything to Paul. It's everything to me, too. He says, finally, in verse 17, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Yeshua, the grace of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. He says, let no one cause me trouble. And the Greek word there is actually kopos. It means a beating. You see, it's a stronger word than what we think of as trouble. I mean, I have people cause me trouble all day long, but none of them give me a beating. (laughs) The connotation, it has the connotation of being beaten. James Dunn in his commentary says this, In secular Greek, the noun kapos denotes a beating or weariness as though one had been beaten. And also the exertion or trouble which causes this state. Paul indicates that the troubles caused among the Galatian churches had been almost like a physical assault on himself because of his concern for his converts and the degree to which he had personally invested himself in the Gentile mission, which left him weary in mind and spirit. The brevity of these final courtesies uh, equally indicates that the extent of his weariness and exasperation. So we could, if we take what Dunn says, and when Paul speaks of the influencers asking non-Jews to convert as being avoidance of suffering for the cross and the suffering we look at the suffering he endured we can assume that part of first corinthians probably happened right here in galatians part of those 40 lashes that he received five times maybe one of the beating with rods who knows we can conclude that some of what happened uh, that ha- that he speaks of there happened here in Galatians. so that's the book of galatians in 27 weeks And you can shut off the tape.